Can we have, please, a moment of silence for the passing of my family's old truck? Uh, sigh. The ranger was only 15 years old. He had survived, uh, he proven his toughness by surviving two wrecks that were deemed total by the supposed experts. The, the truck was only 15 years old. It only had 190,000 miles on it. I, th that's a spring chicken in my rendering, but it began pulling to the left. And that, and that tilt to port increased from 5 degrees to 10 degrees to 15 degrees until we, we couldn't drive it anymore. And we investigated and found out that the axle was so badly warped that there was no way it could be aligned anymore. Now, at that point, it's poor stewardship to pump money into the old boy. So we had, to, we had to say goodbye to the Ranger and scrap it and buy a new car. Now, interestingly, on the very day that I went to the dealership to get a new vehicle, I received a long letter from someone struggling with warped doctrine. By the way, that's not a singularity. A fairly large percentage of the notes that I am blessed to receive every week concern out-of-alignment doctrine. Here's a few of the more painful ones I've received just this month. Uh, Wayne, our friend, laughs at the idea of Jesus being fully God, and he uses lots of authors to support his point. At the conference that we attended, the doctrine of the atonement was described as old-fashioned and insulting. Uh, this one, my sister has adopted the weird theology of Christian universalism. And they go on and on. Now, thinking on those notes, because I got one that day, I was struck by the similarities with my bent axle and, and, and the doomed ranger alignment and what happens with doomed theology. By contrast, by the way, our new car has perfect axles and it is in great alignment. In fact, it even has this amazing feature that, that it has these eyes that look out and see and, and it has this lane alignment so that if the driver ever begins to veer toward the lines, it pushes you back into alignment. You, the, the driver can lose focus for a minute and instead of wrecking, the car will keep you right on line. Isn't that amazing you don't crash? I know what you're thinking. I know exactly what you're thinking. In your Ken Miles imitation, you're asking, if only there was such a thing for bad theology, right? Great question. Thank you for asking, Ken. Happily, there is. There is a perfect lane alignment system for Christians. It's a condensation of Scripture called the Apostles' Creed. It's incredible how much crooked understanding can be straightened out by this ancient creed. It's been a while since we've read it together, so please, if you would, stand and recite with me the Apostles' Creed. Let's all stand. It's, it's printed in your notes. Uh, you got a bulletin from someone with gloves on when you came in, and if you'll open it up, you'll see the Apostles' Creed. It will be on the screen uh, for those who are watching with us online. All together with me, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven, is seated at the right hand of the Father, and will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. That was grand. Now, we don't know exactly how old this statement is, but in the fourth century, 
That creed is referenced in a letter written by a bishop, a guy named Ambrose. Uh, To correct some warped doctrine, Ambrose advised this. He said, let them give attention to the creed of the apostles. Now, that was 390 A.D., And already the creed was widely known then. So let's get to know this venerable Apostles' Creed better. Let's start with its history. That's the first subject in your notes, the the foundation of the creed, its history. Now, it all starts with Jesus, of course. You you do realize Jesus was confessional. That that is, Jesus boldly laid truth out in front of people. Um, Graham, Graham Keith is an expert in the earliest churches, and I think he does a great job summarizing the fertile ground in which the Apostles' Creed was planted. Listen to this. He says, The New Testament was axiomatic for the thinking of the early church. There were no parallels for it to follow. The churches recognized that New Testament religion is decidedly confessional. This was intrinsic to the historical events which lay at the heart of the gospel message. Before his crucifixion, Jesus bore testimony before the Sanhedrin and before Pilate. He was the faithful and true witness. He witnessed the good confession. At the same time, Peter and the other disciples failed to confess their Lord in the hour of darkness, despite their assurances that they would stand by him. In Peter's case, he even denied him three times. Yet, the same disciples as had failed their Lord were shortly to be emboldened by the Holy Spirit to bear witness in hostile surroundings to the resurrection and exaltation of Jesus, the sign that God had designated him both Lord and Christ. The New Testament scriptures, will, listen to this, New Testament scriptures will not allow us to see these special events as connected to a unique set of circumstances. A pattern is set for the dynamics of Christian belief at all times. In other words, Creeds matter, and they have from the beginning. Confessions matter, and they have from the beginning. Please open your Bible to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. While you're turning in your Bible, let's quickly get the context of Romans 10. In the midst of a fascinating discussion of of Jews and prophecy and the gospel of Jesus, the Apostle Paul sets up a really sharp contrast in Romans chapter 10. Using a lot of Old Testament scripture, Paul points out the serious differences between true salvation, which is and always has been by faith in God, and, and false religion, which is always about human works. False religion is and always has been about human works. True religion is and always has been about faith in God. All right, you got that context? With that in mind, let's read Romans 10, verses 9 through 13. Romans 10, 9 through 13. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. One believes with the heart, resulting in righteousness, and one confesses with the mouth, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, everyone who believes on him will not be put to shame. It's a quote from Isaiah 28. Since there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, because the same Lord of all richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone, a quote here from Joel 2, everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, confess here cannot mean some human work that earns salvation. That would make no sense in the context of God's argument. The Greek term that we render confess is homologieo. Homologieo is the word from which we get the English term homogenized, all right? It doesn't have anything to do with the action of speaking per se. Please don't get fixated on that. That's not the point. Homologieo means to line up, to agree. When when my car is inside its lane lines, it is homologieo. That's what a Greek thinker would say. 
It doesn't say anything. Well, my car doesn't say anything yet. Who knows? Um, I'm sure that day is coming, Kit. But, but it doesn't say anything, but it is lined up. It's homologieo, right? The other important Greek term here is dikeosune. Dikeosune is one of the greatest words with which humanity has ever been blessed. Dikeosune is founded in justice, in things being made right. Specifically, dikeosune is used in the Bible to describe the amazing miracle by which sinful human beings are made righteous before God. That's why a lot of versions will translate this uh, justification instead of righteousness. Either rendering is fine as long as we get the point. The point is a person is made right before God by believing in alignment with the truth about Jesus. And that is the thinking behind the Apostles' Creed. The Creed is a confession. It's a summary of things that are true about God, Jesus, and the resurrected life. No... Before you even write me and ask, there is no support for the Roman Catholic legend that the apostles got together and wrote this on the 10th day after Jesus' ascension into heaven. The Apostles' Creed was likely not written by the apostles at all. But the Creed does very nicely capture their doctrine as it is seen in the New Testament. Pressing on from its foundational history, let's spend a moment on the significance of the creed. Look at the right side of your notes. There are three ways the creed can significantly help our lives. First, it keeps us rooted. It keeps us rooted in our historic DNA. Do you like new things? I do. I love new ministries and new babies and the smell of new cars. Notice I didn't say the smell of babies. Although, although actually, the, the, the freshly washed Baby smell is one of the great scents on the planet. It's just fantastic. Um, I especially love springtime because of the smell, that smell of, of fresh things springing up, the green things coming up from the fresh earth. Any, putting allergies aside, how many of you really enjoy the newness of spring? You like all the freshness of it? Okay, me too. It's just fantastic. Now think about those plants coming up. Every one of those plants can only come up if it has roots down in the soil, right? It must be rooted. And that's one of the major mistakes made by people who veer out of biblical orthodoxy. They think that you can get something new by uprooting the old. It doesn't work that way. One of my favorite charges to preachers dealt with this. It was said many years ago by a Presbyterian pastor, Ben Patterson. Look what he said to those of us who do what I do. He said, it would be a sign of great health for the church if a generation of seminary professors and pastors would emerge who were content to live out their vocations with the humility to simply pass on the faith, and here he quotes Jude 3, once for all entrusted to the saints, close quote. That's something the Apostles' Creed can help with. It can make sure that we are grounded in the historical truths that lie at the roots of our faith, truths that have been once for all entrusted to believers. All God's people said? Second, the creed keeps us aligned. Carlos Beltran resigned as manager of the New York Mets without ever managing a single game, never even coached in spring training. Carlos was taken down by the cheating performed by the 2017 Houston Astros. He was a player on that team and was named as a very young manager soon after he retired in 2019. I want you to listen to his resignation letter uh, to the New York Mets. Okay, here's what he wrote. Over my 20 years in the game, I've always taken pride in being a leader and doing things the right way. And in this situation, I failed. As a veteran player on the team, I should have recognized the severity of the issue. He's talking about this sign-stealing scheme and truly regret the actions that were taken. Now, now listen to this. I'm a man of faith and integrity. 
And what took place did not demonstrate those characteristics that are so very important to me and my family. I'm very sorry. It's not who I am as a father, a husband, a teammate, as an educator. The Mets organization and I have mutually agreed to part ways moving forward for the greater good with no further distractions, close quote. Like so many of us with our own failures, Mr. Beltran claims that what he did was out of alignment with what he really believes. But that's not accurate. I'm not picking on Carlos because the truth we're about to study applies to me and to you and to him and to every human. The truth is that whatever we do and say flows directly out of who we are and what we believe. Directly. Carlos believed that winning games was the most important thing. Period. That's what positioned him to cheat. His warped belief regarding winning's importance directly led to the dissonance between what he thought he believed and how he actually acted. And the same problem plagues every one of us. That's why we're studying the scriptures behind the Apostles' Creed. Look, here's our series premise. This is, this is why we're studying this. Every human exercises faith and does so all the time. We display our belief system and what we say. What, what posts we like, how we vote, how we use our money. Unfortunately, these revelations of our belief are rarely examined. And thus we're shocked when our actions seem at odds with what we think we believe. The solution is to deeply consider what we believe and let it continually reshape us. What might have been had Mr. Beltran, a wonderful player and human being, if he had been regularly realigned by sound doctrine. Better, better yet, think of this, think of this. Think of your greatest sins. Think of your most horrible failures. What might have happened differently if you had grounded yourself in truth? What, what if you had taken captive the lies that you were believing then, lies which led you to foolish action? Now there is no, listen, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. But while that's true, it is important that we use our justification for good. We should grow in holiness, which means we need to learn from our past. We continually need to line up our beliefs and thus our actions with God's truth. Amen? Amen. A number of years ago, Pete Briscoe really nicely summarized this aspect of the creed. Pete said, for centuries, the Apostles' Creed has stood as a unifying proclamation for Christians around the globe. It condenses vast amounts of theological power into a single statement, thoroughly biblical. It gives a framework to protect against false teaching and sets a standard for the core teaching of all Christians. It uses a matrix of faith and devotion. The simple outline of the Apostles' Creed weaves a grid of truth, forms a tapestry containing all the essential beliefs of Christianity. It also gives a dynamic source of doctrine that we can plug into when we're called to speak truth, the light of truth, into the darkness of unbelief, close quote. The doctrine of the Apostles' Creed roots us, it keeps us aligned, and it comforts us. There's a uh, comic strip that's in your bulletin there. It's also up on the screen. Charles Schultz Peanuts from many, many years ago, 50 years ago. He put, Charles Schultz often did this. He puts the most profound statement, the most powerful statement, in Linus's mouth. Okay, so look. Lucy says, boy, look at it rain. What if it floods the whole world? And Linus says, it will never do that. In the ninth chapter of Genesis, God promised Noah that would never happen again. And the sign of the promise is the rainbow. You've taken a great load off my mind. And Linus says, sound theology has a way of doing that. True. 
So let's learn sound theology in the Apostles' Creed and be comforted. Creed begins with these words, we believe. Actually, different versions say I or we, but that's very minor. What matters is everyone believes. And that is the big point. Everyone believes. Everyone believes. Listen, Dr. Ryrie explains this really well. When you mail a letter, you're putting your faith in the postal service. When you fly a plane, you're putting it back when you could fly on planes. You're putting your faith in the airline and the professional skills of the flight and maintenance crews. Even if one claims to be an atheist, that has to be done by faith. Only faith can conclude there is no God. No one can gather enough facts to prove that conclusion. The point is this. Everybody exercises faith every day. He is right. Why are you sitting on that chair, wherever you are, whatever chair on which you're sitting? Because you had a reasonable trust that it would hold you, right? Everyone exercises belief like that all day, every day. Recently, the Vice President of the United States headed a task force that was convened to address a serious concern among the public. He began that meeting with prayer. The reaction among the various media made for fascinating theater. Many who believe in the Bible rejoiced. They saw the VP of the U.S. as going to the source of all help. They were thrilled at a prayer in the Oval Office because of scriptures like this. Uh, Read with me. You take the underlying text, Hebrews 11, verse 6. Now, without faith, it is impossible to please God, since the one who draws near to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Right? That was the reaction of many. However, there was a very strong reaction from other Americans. They scoffed at the vice president. Now, their belief system is that only humans, especially only human governments, can do any good for people. Therefore, they were understandably incensed that the vice president was wasting time in prayer. Both groups of people believe, but the different objects of their beliefs led to different actions. The real question is never, does a person believe? The question is, what makes for healthy belief? These people felt that Pence's belief was very unhealthy. These people felt it was very healthy. So what makes for healthy belief? Who's right? You know, nearly every thinking person would say healthy belief depends on the foundational trustworthiness of what is believed. Healthy belief has to be established by believing on truth, right? That's why a court wants to take in the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. A judge and a jury need truth so they can get to a healthy verdict. I was discussing this with Paul Hahn of our elders, and uh, he shared this amazing note with me. Look what Paul wrote. He said, Wayne, apparently the earliest example of the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth occurred in a Reformation sermon. According to the Oxford English Dictionary, in 1571, John Bridges preached a sermon at Paul's Cross in London, and he said this, What should we teach in matters of salvation but the truth and all the truth and nothing but the truth? Close quote. Isn't that cool? Now, consider the opposite. If one believes in untruths, that doesn't bode well, because the the trustworthiness of your foundation determines the healthiness of your belief. The trustworthiness of your foundation determines the healthiness of your belief. Here's another way to think about this. When I was in college, I taught nights at an inner city school where adults were studying to uh, earn their, go back and earn their GED, their high school diplomas. It was very rewarding work. I enjoyed it. It taught me a great deal. The most shocking and painful thing that I observed was how my students ate. At our supper breaks, they would go out and spend silly amounts of money on literal junk from a convenience store. And when I inquired, here's what bothered me, not that they did that for one meal, but when I inquired and got to know them, I found out they did that for every 
meal every day. So I got permission to use the cafeteria after hours at this old school, and I required each student to purchase different ingredients at a grocery store and bring them to class, and we learned to cook together, enjoying genuinely healthy meals that, by the way, cost a fraction of the junk. It was probably the second most important thing I taught that class after the gospel of Jesus. They got healthier. They were better able to focus. And by the way, every one of my students passed. What makes for healthy belief? Believing truth. Because what you take in determines your health. If you want healthy belief, you must take in truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. There's another parallel to food. What you take in is eventually going to emanate from you. For example... I have Asian friends who swear they can tell that I eat red meat because they can smell it when I walk by. By the way, I am certain that's why adult men follow me as a leader, because I smell like beef and cheese. Uh, seriously, if one takes in truth, it leads to healthy belief, just as in taking good food in leads to a healthy body. And just like food, truth wafts from you. Whatever you take in is your smell. You're in Romans still, right? Turn back to chapter 4. Let's read Romans chapter 4, verses 18 through 25. Go to Romans 4, verse 18. Pick it up there. He believed, talking about Abraham, hoping against hope so that he became the father of many nations. A quote from Genesis 17. According to what had been spoken, so will your descendants be. That's a quote from Genesis 15. He did not weaken in faith when he, Abraham, considered his own body to be already dead since he was about 100 years old, and also the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver in unbelief at God's promise, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God because he was fully convinced that what God had promised he was able to do. Therefore, quote from Genesis 15, it was credited to him for righteousness. Now, it was credited to him was not written for Abraham alone, but also for us. It will be credited to us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. All God's people said? Romans 4 describes Abraham's wonderful normal setting. His normal setting is a life that is grounded in the total truth of God's grace. And because he believes in that total truth, well, that makes all the difference. Because of that, he is right with God. Because of that, holiness emanates from him. Trusting in God's truth, Abraham enjoyed healthy belief. Even when it appeared that he was too old and God's promises were impossible, Abraham took in truth and he believed God. That's how one gains righteousness. Holiness emanated from Abraham because he fed himself on God's truth, grace, promises. In fact, the few times we, th we see Abraham screw up his life, and he does a few times, truth is always involved. You know what I'm saying? always involves truth. Here's what happens. The times that Abraham goofs up, he stops trusting God's truth. That leads to unhealthy belief systems, especially for Abraham, the idea that he has to take care of everything himself. I know none of us can relate to that, but that's, that's his default problem. And because of that, that leads to the collapse of spiritual flabbiness and smelly mistakes. Thankfully, Abraham repented every time he repented from his foolishness. He returned, as should we, to believe in the truth of God's words and deeds. Rich Mullins wrote a powerful poem about this. Look what Rich Mullins wrote many years ago uh, from, his, from his song Creed. He said, I believe what I believe. It's what makes me what I am. And I did not make it. No, it is making me. It is the very truth of God and not the invention of any man. 
The Apostles' Creed begins, I believe. I believe in God. Now that begs a really important question. Is there a God? Whatever conclusion one reaches, the answer requires faith. It requires... Look, in, in their book, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, uh, Norm Geisler and Frank Turek show the great amount of faith that is required for atheism, the idea that there is no God. It's not a perfect book. The tone is actually a little bit snarky. However, they do a good job of showing how much faith it takes to believe in nothing. It takes an amazing amount of belief to hold to atheism, the idea that there is no God. It's actually probably the most difficult thing in the world to have enough faith to believe that. Um, by the way, agnosticism also requires a great deal of faith. That's the contention that we can't know anything about God. Um, people usually miss how much faith is required for agnosticism. We can't know requires remarkable trust because the epistemology of life argues otherwise. There is so much that human beings can know. Doesn't it seem illogical to think we cannot know anything certain about God? That's why God, la God loving them to get their attention sarcastically laughs in the face of the atheist and the agnostic. Look, Isaiah 45. God says, woe to the one who argues with his maker, one clay pot among many. Does the clay say to the one forming it, what are you making? Does your work say, he has no hands. This was made from nothing, from no one. That's hilarious, folks. That is really, really funny. Faith is necessary if you're going to be an agnostic or an atheist. Much more faith than I will ever possess. Faith is also necessary for the acceptance of pantheism uh, or Star Wars terms and impersonal force. I mean, to, to believe in some power, but to refuse logical revelation from that power, that, that requires an astounding amount of hubris and, and faith as well. Totally blind faith is required for self-worship. I mean, if you, if, if you think that you are worthy of worship, you have a massive and unwarranted amount of trust in yourself. The bottom line is every system of answering the question of God involves faith. The problem is that none of these ones that we examined is reasonable. It's not that they take faith. It's that they're not reasonable. Now, the same logic has to be applied to the creed. As we ask in our notes, is faith in one God reasonable? I have found the bar of faith much lower with the God of the Bible than with all these other worldviews. There are many other th thinkers that have concluded that same as well, that that. The only reasonable conclusion is the one God. For example, 2013, Dr. William Lane Craig participated in a debate with Dr. Alex Rosenberg at Purdue University. Really a fascinating, fascinating uh, piece. Their, their, um, their topic was, is faith in God reasonable? 5,000 people packed in before the cancellation culture completely took over and watched the event at Purdue. Tens of thousands streamed it online live. Uh, I want to show you a clip. This is just the first of eight arguments that Dr. Craig makes in his opening uh, address. This is just the very first one, but I think it gives you the idea. I believe that God's existence best explains a wide range of the data of human experience. Let me just mention eight. First, God is the best explanation of why anything at all exists. Suppose you were hiking through the forest and came upon a ball lying on the ground. You would naturally wonder how it came to be there. If your hiking buddy said to you, just forget about it, it just exists inexplicably, you would think either that he was joking or that he wanted you to just keep moving. 
No one would take seriously the idea that the ball just exists without any explanation. Now, notice that merely increasing the size of the ball, even until it becomes coextensive with the universe, does nothing to provide or remove the need for an explanation of its existence. So, what is the explanation of the existence of the universe? Whereby the universe, I mean all of space-time reality. The explanation of the universe can lie only in a transcendent reality, beyond the universe, beyond space and time, which is metaphysically necessary in its existence. Now, there's only one way I can think of to get a contingent universe from a necessarily existing cause. And that is if the cause is a personal agent who can freely choose to create a contingent reality. It therefore follows that the best explanation of the existence of the contingent universe is a transcendent personal being, which is what everybody means by God. We can summarize this reasoning as follows. One, every contingent thing has an explanation of its existence. Two, if the universe has an explanation of its existence, that explanation is a transcendent personal being. Three, the universe is a contingent thing. Four, therefore the universe has an explanation of its existence. Five, therefore the explanation of the universe is a transcendent personal being, which is what everybody means by God. Pretty cool. The whole video is great. I recommend it. Uh, by the way, so are others by Laurie Stewart and Ravi Zacharias and J.P. Moreland. They're a bunch of brilliant modern apologists. Uh, you've got lots of time on your hands the next few days. You should, uh, you should watch them. The conclusion is that logic dictates this. Belief in the one God of the Bible is not only reasonable, it is the most reasonable conclusion. One of my favorite thinkers on this topic is Ron Rhodes. Uh, Dr. Rhodes was a member here for many years before they had to move. I'd like you to look at this great note that he sent me. This is from Ron. He said, Wayne, these are the main arguments I come across against the reasonableness of believing in God, and below each of them is how I respond. Okay? So somebody says to Ron, there are no absolutes. Response, are you absolutely sure about that? We cannot be certain about anything. Are you certain about that? We should doubt everything. Should that statement be doubted? We cannot know truth. How do you know that statement's true? We should never judge. If it's wrong to judge, why are you judging? Statement, this is a good one. It's true for you, but not for me. And Ron says, is that statement just true for you, but not for me? Truth about God is not objective. Oh, that sounds like objective truth about God. <laughs> words cannot express meaning. Do those words express meaning? This is one actually gets from Christians fairly often. We must avoid making any confessional or creedal statements. Isn't that a confessional or creedal statement? It is, by the way. Statement, there's no rational support for what we believe. Is there any rational support for that belief? And it could go on and on and on. Unlike those ludicrous objections, we can think through the great ancient creedal statement that is unequivocally straightforward, I believe in God, 
the Father. Now that Father should come as an absolute shock. Father, that, that means a personal relationship. That, that, is, that is incredible. The boldness of this is astounding. Atheism has no father, although, although atheists often seem to have daddy issues. Have you noticed that? They get awfully angry at this father in whom they supposedly don't believe. It's really intriguing. Anyway, um, agnostics are similar, by the way, but usually without as much anger. There is no loving God in pantheism or paganism, Hinduism, Buddhism, Shinto. We could go on all day. There is no good God who relates as father. But the Bible says there is. It boldly states God's fatherhood to everyone who trusts him. Here's an example. Flip back to Romans chapter 8. Go back to Romans chapter 8. Back to the east in your Bible. Romans 8, let's read 15 and 16. For you, he's talking to Christians, did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. Abba, by the way, is the familiar Aramaic term of that day for father. It's, it's like our daddy. It's a very familiar word. Here, read with me. Beautiful statements. Uh, Psalm 103, verse 13, all together. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on his faithful followers. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. See what great love together is an English word. It means we all speak at the same time. Let's try this. 1 John 3, verse 1. See what great love the Father has given us that we should be called God's children, and we are. God is the Father of those who have faith in him. Amen? Amen. All right. Now, what more do we believe about this God? We've got all this set up. We've talked about, I believe, uh, what belief means. Everybody believes. We talked about God. Is there a God? Yes, it's the most reasonable conclusion. We talked about the Father We'll have to do the rest next time because we are out of time. So sorry. We've got to stop there for today. For now, I'd like us to do this. Let's close with a letter. I want to share with you a letter that deeply touched me. A friend knew that I was going to be teaching the scriptures behind the Apostles' Creed, and, and he wrote me this. Look what he wrote. He said, Wayne, I may have told you this before, but I have a strong attachment to the Apostles' Creed. I was raised in the Baptist church, baptized at a young age, memorized many scripture verses and hymns, stood for many prolonged altar calls, but never heard of the Apostles' Creed. By my early 20s, we were living in the Northeast, imbibing that culture, and I drifted completely away from church. I never thought about God much, and when I did, I was agnostic. In my late 30s, our 11-year-old daughter was invited to First Presbyterian Church, and we began to attend. It was a warm and friendly church with a caring pastor, though Jesus and the Scriptures were not particularly exalted from the pulpit, but every Sunday we stood and recited the Apostles' Creed. After a year or two, I was driving to work one Monday, reciting the creed in my head. I can still see the scene in my mind. As I finished reciting, a voice in my head said, this is serious. You better believe what you're saying or you better stop saying it. To say the least, that brought me up short. But after a pause, I said, I believe. That was the beginning of my walk as a faithful follower of Jesus. It was clearly the work of the Holy Spirit. Thanks to God the Father, close quote. Amen? Pray with me, please. Let's pray. Father, I pray for anyone here or wherever they may be who has never trusted in Jesus, never believed in the Son, 
and thus does not have a relationship with you, our wonderful Father. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe with your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Align the truth. Live the confession. Jesus is Lord. He died on the cross willingly for you. He rose from the dead, conquering death so that you need have no fear of anything, not even death. You can follow him in everlasting life as a faithful follower. You can live out the confession of your belief, but you have to believe on Jesus. Oh, you believe. Listen, you believe in lots of things. Some of them are probably foolish. Few of them may be wise, but only one can be bedrock. Take in the truth that Jesus is Lord and Savior. Trust him. Trust him alone for your salvation. If you just prayed to trust Jesus, raise your hand. Let me rejoice with you. Good for you. Amen. Father, I pray for all the Christians here and wherever they may be that we will live lives aligned with truth. By your grace, may we actively believe in God our Father no matter what we face. Amen.